Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for these parables which Jesus told, uh, made up stories which tell us something profoundly true uh, about God and his kingdom and how we should live in the light of it. So please we pray. May the truths embodied and encoded into these parables this morning in Luke 16 uh, come home to us with a fresh sense and may they guide us, particularly as we think about a wise use of the wealth we ask. Amen. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, cigarette advertisements were very romanticized. Uh, they pictured cowboys riding across scenic desert plains, uh, macho and free. Uh, these days, due to government health regulations, uh, cigarette advertisements uh, stand in stark contrast, and rightly so. Uh, a public health warning is now mandatory. Uh, cigarette packets in Australia must now display a warning covering at least 30% of the surface of the pack, which says something like, smoking kills, or smoking seriously harms you and others around you. Uh, it must also be accompanied by real-life pictures of the damage and decay that smoking inflicts on human organs and flesh. And indeed, it amazes me that anybody buys the things anymore. Yet in our society, money is still romanticized, like the old cigarette advertisements. The hope of prosperity is the smoke that we all inhale. Uh, the media constantly bombards us with the message that we should aspire for ever-increasing wealth. But Jesus brings us back down to earth with a bump. When Jesus talks about wealth, he sticks a big warning that covers at least 30% of the surface, which says something like, money kills. Money can seriously harm you and others around you. It is, in effect, a public wealth warning. Now, in Luke chapter 16, uh, Jesus is talking about money, and it has these stickers all over it. And one of the biggest warning stickers is in this story that Jesus tells in the second half of the chapter, verses 19 to 31. And of course, it's the story of two men, two destinies, and five brothers. So, two men. Uh, the first man we are introduced to is uh, uber-wealthy. He is described in the most opulent terms. Material prosperity is oozing out of every pore of his body. At verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Now, purple clothes were extremely expensive in Jesus' day. Purple was the color of kings. This guy had designer clothes and the latest fashion. He lives in luxury. Uh, he's well established in the property market. Verse 20 begins at his gate. And the word translated gate is usually used of entrances to grand temples or palaces. The second character in the story stands in complete contrast to the first. Verse 20. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, 
and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. This poor guy's body is not covered in fine clothes, but weeping sores. He's malnourished. He longs to eat the leftovers from the rich man's garbage. And he lies at the gate, indicating that he may well be crippled. And his only companions are the dogs that lick his sores. It's almost as if he is dehumanized. And yet, he has one thing that the rich man doesn't have. He has a name. Lazarus. Now, this is the only occasion that Jesus gives one of his story characters a name, and the name is significant. Lazarus is a shortened version of the Hebrew name Eliza, and it means God is my help. God is my help. A man, you see, in Lazarus's situation could well have blamed God for his predicament and harbored bitterness, and instead his name indicates that he looked to God for his help and for his vindication. You see, he let his suffering and his poverty drive him to God, not away from God. The rich man didn't need a name in the story. Uh, his wealth defined his identity. He was just a faith, faceless millionaire. But the poor man was not anonymous. He had a name that pointed to his relationship of faith and trust in God. So, firstly, two men. Secondly, two destinies. Uh, for each of these men, their eyelids close in death, but when they open again, they are confronted with two very different views and destinies. Verse 22. Uh, the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. For these two, uh, death is not the great leveler. Rather, it brings about a great reversal. Uh, Lazarus is in heaven and the rich man is in hell. Uh, some people these days decide that they can't accept the Bible's doctrine of hell. Uh, they object, how on earth could a loving God possibly send people to eternal damnation? And as a result, they often reason that, well, surely uh, God doesn't send people to hell, or if he does, surely it's only got to be the very, very wicked people. Well, there are various things that could be said in response to such a position. But I think the starting point in any such discussion, is to look at the source of the Bible's teaching on hell. Because, of course, it is Jesus. By far, the majority of the Bible's teaching on hell comes from the lips of our Lord. And given that Jesus is one of the most respected and influential religious teachers in the history of the world, what he says is not to be dismissed lightly. Uh, Jesus did teach that God is love, 
But Jesus also warned us repeatedly about the horrors of hell. You see, it's inconsistent for these people to pick and choose Jesus' teaching. If they accept that God is loving, they also have to accept that hell is real because Jesus said so. And what we see in Jesus' teaching is that it's not just the exceptionally wicked that go there. Uh, there is no indication in the story that the man's wealth, the rich man's wealth, was ill-gotten. Uh, he's not accused of insider trading or peddling drugs. So what did the rich man do wrong? Well, in short, he did nothing to help Lazarus. He lived in luxury and yet showed no compassion and no mercy to this poor man on his doorstep. He gave Lazarus no welfare, no clothing, no food, no money. He gave him no welcome. He didn't invite him in. The rich man lived a lifestyle of luxury and self-indulgence and didn't care two hoots for the poor. Do you remember what we saw last week about love? Love is not just passive, but also. Love isn't just avoiding doing evil, but it's actually doing good. The rich man loved himself, but to the exclusion of loving others, particularly the needy. Now, we understand the point of this parable more clearly when we look at its context. And indeed, the whole of chapter 16 provides the context. And chapter 16 is part of this wider teaching of Jesus on the use of wealth. You see, unlike the shrewd manager in verses 1 to 9, the rich man was not shrewd. The rich man didn't manage his money in the light of eternity. Uh, the rich man didn't make, use it to make friends who would welcome him into the eternal kingdom. The rich man didn't make a friend of Lazarus through his money. And he didn't use his wealth compassionately. The rich man wasn't faithful in this little matter of money with what God had entrusted to him. He served money and he loved money, just like the Pharisees. You see, the original target audience for these stories of Jesus were the Pharisees who actually ridiculed Jesus. Verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Like the rich man, the Pharisees ignored Jesus' teaching on wealth. Uh, Jesus was warning them that if they continued to live as they were, they would ultimately pay the ultimate price. It's interesting to also now just consider and to point to a siding and to think about what does Jesus At the most basic point is that just as heaven is real, so is hell. Uh, both exist. Uh, death is not the end. Our personalities survive death in a conscious state. That they are unlikely to repent is the same for people throughout the ages. Because at the end of the day, 
The decision to repent is not based on evidence most often, but a lack of will. Verse 31. Abraham said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if somebody rises from the dead. You see the great irony in Jesus' words, of course, because subsequently somebody did rise from the dead. Uh, Jesus' resurrection did convince millions and has been the reason for the phenomenal growth of the church over the centuries. When it comes to money, uh, I'm always happy to receive more. Sorry. Uh, however, uh, most also resist the responding right to Jesus' resurrection. The problem is not lack of evidence, but a stubbornness of will. So, uh, what should be the impact of Jesus' story on us today? Uh, when I look at this whole chapter and ask the question, so what does this mean for me? Uh, two challenges stand out to me. Firstly, the danger of loving money. When I look back over this passage, verse 14 stands out in big, red, bold type. Verse 14 again. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. They were sneering at Jesus. They didn't believe his teaching, and they weren't going to take it seriously. They loved money. Uh, for them, money was a means of status. It was a means of security, and it was a means of self-indulgence. Primarily, the focus of their spending was, number one, themselves. Like the rich man, they weren't faithful stewards of the money that God had entrusted to them. And in particular, they did not use their money to care for the poor. Now, when I look at my own heart, I have to ask, how seriously do I take Jesus' teaching on money? When it comes to money, I'm always happy to receive more. I'm delighted when my investments do well and crestfallen when they don't. But to what extent is that a product of me breathing the smoke and inhaling the smoke of society's view of money and wealth. Maybe when my investments go in the wrong direction, I should be trusting that this is God's ordaining for my life and my situation in life at this time. And this is something I've had to reflect on recently in terms of what has happened to some of our shares of late. Maybe part of the agony I feel is that a failure to trust God, that he will give me what I need, and he will ordain ultimately what is best for me in terms of wealth. What constitutes enough money? Living in a comfortable Western society bubble, it's easy to forget how rich I am on the world spectrum. At my needs and my financial anxieties well, they are very relatively defined, aren't they? I would suggest to you that none of us are immune from our view of money becoming skewed and out of perspective. The shock in Luke 16 is who Jesus told this story to. That they were not materialistic pagans. They were actually church lay leaders. The public wealth warning is issued to people in the church, like me and like 
you. Is it possible that I may gradually slip into a love of money over time? And the answer is yes. How do I know if this is happening? Well, there are many things that could be said, but let's look particularly at what this passage tells us, because we do have a few litmus paper tests in this very chapter. Uh, One obvious test from this chapter is this. How compassionate am I in the use of my money? Am I using my money not just for my own selfish indulgence, but also for the care of the poor and the needy? Uh, Here in Cherrybrook, we are pretty insulated against poverty. Uh, It is a comfortable suburb to live in, as in the other suburbs which mostly I think you live in. But we can still care for the poor. Uh, There may be opportunities locally to reach out and to care for the poor. And maybe we can think together in our comments and question times afterwards of maybe ways we can practically do that. Uh, We can give to organisations that help the world's poor, like Tear Fund and Samaritan's Purse. And I'm grateful to Liz Walder uh, for faithfully organising the Operation Christmas Child every year and getting us to reach out and to care for the poor in that practical way. So thank you, Liz. We can give to organisations that focus specifically on helping the Christian poor, the persecuted church, like Voice of the Martyrs, uh, Open Doors and the Barnabas Fund. Uh, A few months ago, uh, Tracy and myself had decided to give some money to some of these organisations that support the persecuted church. Uh, I had transferred a third of the funds that we decided to give uh, when suddenly something else happened. Uh, An investment opportunity came up in some shares. They seemed to be going down in price. And I thought, for the remaining two thirds, I'll just park it for a moment and I'll invest it in these shares. And then when it goes up, as it surely will, I'll give this money then, this remaining money balance to these Christian organizations. Well, you know the story. I shared it with you the other week. The shares didn't go up, they went down. And quite heart-droppingly uh, so. Well, uh, that didn't expect that. And I felt somewhat rebuked and convicted. And I indeed feel convicted to pay the remaining balance to these organizations, even though it would mean cashing in some of these shares now at a loss. Because giving to our Christian brothers and sisters, the poor and the needy overseas, is a priority that we should never let slip. And we shouldn't park something we're going to do later when it is more convenient. So uh, that is the first challenge, I think, of this passage, a a warning against the love of money. Secondly and finally, there is an encouragement to invest our wealth for people's eternal benefit. Another verse which really stands out to me as I surveyed this whole chapter and thinking about what does this mean to me was verse 9. And it says this. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's profound. This verse shows me a way to use wealth now so that it matters for eternity. 
Our worldly wealth will one day be gone, as it says, and there's no avoiding that. And yet it can be used in such a way now that it will pay dividends for eternity. So here is a second litmus test from this chapter to gauge the temperature of my heart in regards to money. To what extent and in what ways does eternity shape the extent to which I am radically generous now? Because you see, it's not just heaven that is real, but also hell. How can I use my money now in such a way that it may actually alter people's eternal destiny? You see, the danger in Jesus' first parable, uh, the manager in the first parable was not commended for his dishonesty, but being shrewd. And the manager used his wealth in the present with an eye to the future. And if we want to be shrewd, we can use our wealth now with an eye to eternity. We can use our money to love people, to be kind to people, to be compassionate. And when we pass from this life into glory, they will be there welcoming us. Uh, they may be people who are already Christians. And on that day, they will say, thank you for giving generously to open doors. I was living with my family in North Korea. The help and support of Open Doors spoke encouragement to our family and strengthened us to keep going in our Christian faith in the midst of a most awful situation. And your money given to that organization was one of the means of God's grace to us and its love to us. Thank you for loving us in that practical way. And we are here to welcome you now into glory, partly because of you. Welcome. Or we may be helping people who are not yet Christians. And on that day, they will say, hey, the reason I'm here is in part because of you. Thank you for being so radically generous to me with your money. I was very struck about how countercultural it was. And it drew me to ask questions about your Christian faith, which I would never have otherwise done. I am here in part because of you. Welcome and thank you. Let us pray. Lord God, uh, it is a challenging chapter. It involves a wealth warning. And it gives us wisdom to use our wealth well now in this life. Help us to beware slipping into a love of money and all the security and the status and the comfort it brings. Help us to live wisely now, using our wealth in a strategic way to be gospelly generous, such that uh, it has a wonderful impact for eternity and something which we will look back on and never regret having used in that manner from the vantage point of eternity. Amen.